Do you ever do something just because it's the quote-unquote nice thing to do? Or do you ever do it and then feel immediate resentment after you did the nice thing? Or better yet, you are known as the nice person that people can rely on, but ultimately your needs and what you want are put in the backseat because you don't want to offend anybody for not being nice? Well, if any of this rings true, I hope you're ready for an awesome episode where we talk with Dr. Aziz Gazipura, who runs the Social Confidence Center and is the author of two books, Not Nice, and most recently published, Less Nice, More You. We chat with Dr. Aziz about the constant struggle to please others and the toll it can take on yourself. We learn about the differences between being nice to someone versus being kind to someone. And also, we learn how to stand up for ourselves and have a little bit of confidence while doing it. This is Reconsidering, a podcast about life and how to make it better. I'm Meredith Black. I'm Aaron Walter. I'm Bob Baxley. Welcome to Reconsidering. I'm Dr. Aziz Gazapora and the author of my newest book, Less Nice, More You. So, Dr. Aziz, thanks for joining us today. As we do at the beginning of our show, we have a set of lightning round questions, sort of a A or B type thing. You ready to play? All right, let's do it. Okay, here we go. Pencil or pen? Pen. City or country? Country. Home or office? Home. A hug or a handshake? Hug. Time or money? Time. Passionate or practical? Practical. Point it out or let it go? Point it out. Nice or kind? Kind. By the book or against the rules? Against all the rules. Well, most of the rules. Inspiration or persistence? Persistence. And finally, poetry or prose? Prose. Nice. Thank you. So, Aziz, for the uninitiated in your new book and your prior book, they might be wondering, nice, wait a second, why is nice a bad thing? Yeah, I think that's the most common starting question, because when most people hear the word nice, they might think it's a form of social grace or kindness, maybe taking care of others and being considerate. And so the idea of not doing those things, it sounds off or wrong or maybe even detrimental to your relationships, to your life. But what I found first in myself, this is what I had to discover for my own uh, journey, but then also working with many, many clients is the most good-hearted people who are trying to do the right thing were overwhelmed with anxiety, inadequacy, and stress. And it turns out that the biggest contributor to that was this pressure and this demand on themselves to be nice. And so I started to investigate that whole idea more. And you don't actually have to go that far beneath the surface to see, well, there's one form that might seem like it's useful socially or kind. But even if you just look at the definition of nice, like the second definition is to be pleasing to others. And already you say, wait a minute, pleasing? Like, is that always good? And that when you discover it is, well, it depends. It really depends. And sometimes it can be the right thing to do. And sometimes it is 100% at odds with who you really are and how you really want to live. And that's when it starts to become very problematic when people are bound into that. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that. 
I also think of the word kind, right? And we talk about being kind to other people. And I think reading your books, it became very clear what the difference between nice and kind is. And I always have a post-it note on my desk that says, be kind to yourself, not be nice to yourself. But I never really thought about the difference until you kind of pulled those apart. Can you pull those apart just a little bit further for us so that way our listeners can understand? Absolutely. So I Not Nice, I wrote back in 2017 and released then. And the newest one, Less Nice, More You, I started the very first chapter is called Kind Versus Nice. Because I think that's one of the biggest obstacles to even listening to this stuff is like, wait a minute, I don't want to be a jerk. I don't like that guy. He's going to tell me to be something that's, the world doesn't need more of that is what people's first reactions might be. So I really wanted at the beginning to head that off at the pass. So Kind Versus Nice In essence, kindness is a choice and niceness is a compulsion. So being able to give to someone, say yes to someone who's asking you for something, maybe even give when it's a little inconvenient or hard for you. Those are things you can choose to do if you're kind. I'll take my friend to the airport. I'll stay later with my mom when she's having a hard time or sick or something like that. But the nice person doesn't have a choice. The friend says, can you take me to the airport? The answer is 100% yes, no matter what. It doesn't matter if you're sick, if you have low resources, if you just drove the kids all over the city, if you're, it doesn't matter. Be a good person and do it. And so in a way, niceness, I like to think of those old Westerns where they would run into the bank and they'd put their pistols out and they say, this is a stick up. And everyone puts their hands up and they're like, "Wow, okay. And the nice person is kind of always being stuck up. Like someone's request is a demand. Can you take me to the airport? Yes, whatever you need. And that is actually rude. There's a lot of fear in that nervous system. And so it's a compulsion. You have to do it or else, dot, dot, dot. And the or else, the nice person knows what the or else is. It's guilt, recriminating, beating yourself up, anxiety, a sense of, oh no, I'm going to lose the person. They're going to hate me forever. I'm so bad. And that is really different than kind because kindness, when you've done it, even if it's a little hard, you generally have, a, I talk about in the book, there's a glow afterwards. Like that felt like the, that was the right thing to spend time, even if it was challenging. I'm not saying you don't have mixed feelings, but overall you're like, that was right. Niceness leaves this residue of resentment. You're like, I had to do that. Oh, my friend was so annoying on that car ride. And then we, of course we stuff that down because we're nice. And that leads to a whole nother set of problems as well. This is something that I have noticed as I've aged is that a generous act when someone resents it or calls it out, it's no longer generous. It just falls apart. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm reminded, it's making me laugh. So we have uh, two sons. They're seven and nine. And there's this game I play with, especially my older son. It's called Magic the Gathering. If there's any nerds out there, they know what it is. It's awesome. And he plays with me. And our younger son, seven, is trying to learn it. But it's a complicated game. And My older son can only play with me, but he would love to be able to play anytime with his younger brother, but he has to teach his younger brother. So he has this urge to just crush him and dominate him, you know, his win. And I'm like, well, look, if you just dominate him, he's not going to want to play with you. So you have to kind of, you don't have to lose every game, but let him catch up, let him win sometimes. He's like, okay, I got you. That makes, yes, that makes sense. And then next time he's playing with him, he lets him win. And I'm, I'm looking over the shoulder. I'm like, yes, you know? But within 20 seconds, he can tell he's just upset. And he says something like, well, I mean, I let you win. 
And all of a sudden, he just spills the beans that the whole thing was a hoax. And of course, my younger son's like, oh, no, you're right. And so it's funny, like when you call the thing out, it no longer has the same effect. And so letting him win is an act of generosity. But when you say, hey, I did that for you, but I didn't want to, all of a sudden, it, it removes the actual kindness, perhaps, of it. There's something in there about honesty as well, right? Like being nice, you do something, being kind, you know, you're doing it because you want to, but also you said this in your book and I'd never thought about it this way before, but also being kind can also mean not necessarily being nice, but being honest. Yeah. So there's overlap between a nice act and a kind act. And it's not the act, it's where it's coming from that I think makes the distinguishing quality. And always niceness is coming from fear and self-preservation. I don't want to be left. I don't want to be hurt. I don't want to be bad. Whether it's you judging me or me judging myself, I don't want those feelings. I'm afraid of that. So let me do what I need to do. And so saying the honest thing or what seems true to me, but it might upset you or disappoint you, well, I can't do that because then I can't deal with those feelings. That's the nice person thinking or underlying operating system. Whereas someone who's kind might say, well, this might temporarily upset the person, but it, maybe it's an act of kindness to myself to speak the truth. It might even be an act of kindness to the other person. You know, they got bad breath. That's a trivial example. But do you just kind of slink away and be like, don't, yeah, don't come talk to me? Or I use the example of the book, like, honey, your breath's a little strong. You know, <laughs> right? And that's an act of kindness for the other person as well, even if they might temporarily feel a little embarrassed. Yeah, there's an authenticity to kindness that I think is missing from niceness. And to go back to your game playing example, because I struggle with this when I used to play chess, when my kids would still play chess with me. And it's always a struggle to let the other person win because the oh, other yeah. person at a certain level, they kind of know it, right? And it takes all the interesting stuff of the competition out of the event. And eventually I realized, oh, what you need to do is handicap the game. And so yeah. play, oh, play without a, yeah, you play without a piece or something, right? And so there's an act of kindness in that you've handicapped the competition, but you are still playing as hard as you can. So both sides feel like, oh, it's still an authentic thing. Um, but I didn't have to give you the handicap, but I did. That's a way around the game playing example you came up with. But I think you're hinting at both parties need to realize it's still an authentic, honest interaction. Whereas niceness, you're right. It doesn't feel that way. It feels like the person being nice is like pretending somehow. Absolutely. Aziz, in your book, Not Nice, that came out in 2017, I was struck by how forthcoming you were in that book. Speaking of honesty, you laid it all on the line. And you come to this discipline of understanding confidence, boundary setting, you know, sort of authenticity and understanding yourself in social situations. You come to it honestly that, you know, you were struggling as a young person. Could you share a little bit of what that struggle was and how you moved through it? Sure. Yeah. And I think that's a teaching style that I have intentionally adopted. I'm going to demonstrate what I'm also encouraging readers to do. Do as I say, but I'm not going to do it. Right. It's like, well, hey, if this is what I'm asking of us, let's do it. And it's uncomfortable. <laughs> but it's an intentional choice. But yes, yeah, so my interest in this came from living the effects of being both overly nice, but also niceness cousin is social anxiety. 
both of them have their root in the same thing, which is I need to be a certain way or else you won't like me. I won't be loved. Maybe if it's strong enough, I don't know if I even can be that way because there's something wrong with me. Maybe I can put my finger on it, label it my appearance or my moods or whatever. Or sometimes it's just a vague floating feeling of inadequacy, defective, something like that. That's kind of the seed of both. Social anxiety is more the avoidant, like I'm not going to go to the party. I'm not going to talk to the person. I'm going to really hide <laughs> as much as possible. Stay home and play video games. Stay home and play video games. That was one of my go-tos for sure. And then niceness is a bit more adaptive in that, okay, I'm going to be seen. I'll, I'll go talk to the person or at least I'll wait for them to come talk to me, but I'm going to still play a very strong role of what I think you want and not reveal myself, my defective, inadequate self, right? So they're just two branches of the same tree. And I struggle with both quite a bit. When I was younger, it was very severe social anxiety. And yes, lots of video games, very few close friendships, no deeply authentic of letting people know me or the challenges I had. And of course, very limited exposure, no dating at all. And that was like my entire teenage years, all the way into my early 20s. And then I had a spasm of, oh my God, this can't be the rest of my life, and began to look for solutions in a more earnest way than I ever had before. And a fuel of desperation, which is actually beneficial if it causes you to do things. Basically, I saw the level of pain or fear I had of embarrassment, rejection, became dwarfed by the pain of imagining living that way for another 50 years. I'll do it. And I just really started to build a base level of confidence. However, you know, it was good and bad. And I got, it's almost like I escaped one cage to go into another. And so I escaped the cage of I can't talk to people. And I did. I talked to a lot of people. I did tons of social practice and exposure and got a lot better at it. But it was, I just, with open arms, embraced the nice side of things. So I flipped into the, I could talk to people, but I was very nice. I could be charming, but I was always, always wondering what do they want to hear and what so that led to is sure, I could talk to people, I could develop some more friendships, but still people didn't really know me. And while I could date, I never could really have a real relationship because there's a lack of being known and intimacy and like needing to play a role. And so that one was much harder to break out of because I just couldn't see it. Like social anxiety, it's kind of like, yeah, do what scares you and yeah, and you can break free of a lot. But with the niceness, I didn't even know what was going on. Why do I get crazy when I try to get into a relationship? Why do I just want to get away from the person? And what I realized as I started to learn about niceness is, oh, the reason I can't have a relationship is because I have no boundaries. I don't even know what a boundary is. And as I talk about in Less Nice, More You, the new one, ultimately a boundary is just your preferences. What do you want and not want? Do you want to spend the evening together? Do you not want to spend, how do you want to spend the evening together? And I didn't even let myself know those things because what if that was different than what the other person wanted? I'd disappoint or upset them. And that was such a unacceptable thing that, you know, it was such a old Western stick up style that it's hard to be in a relationship when you've got your hands up all the time. So I ended up struggling quite a bit in relationships and having a lot of like intense panic and other things when I try to get close to somebody. And then it really entrenched the story of like, wow, I must really be messed up. Like confronting all this stuff didn't work. I mean, I had like probably a two-year period where I just was convinced. Now I know what's wrong with me. Like what's wrong with you, Aziz? My intimacy ability is just broken. 
like I didn't get that gene. I don't have that circuit. Something is wrong. And I really thought it was irretrievable or something. And then, you know, fortunately, like I have one of my phrases now is every problem has a solution. And I just didn't know the solutions at the time. And then I started to discover them. And that's why I was so passionate about teaching that and then ultimately writing, you know, this series of books is because you're not broken. Sometimes it's very, very simple things. Now, they might be very uncomfortable or hard to apply. There's a lot of retraining to do this, to have a boundary, to say what you want. But the solution is actually quite simple. I have a theory, Aziz, about where this comes from and why this happens. I think people get trapped in childhood and they don't ever make the transition from being the agreeable child who's told, this is the way you're supposed to behave. This is what a good kid is. Good boy, good girl. And then they become adults, but they didn't really go through any doorway of now you're an adult and now you can set your own boundaries. Now you can make choices for yourself. They're always trapped in childhood. And in your book, you talk a bit about childhood. I'm curious how that sits with you. I think that's a great insight on that. I mean, it seems that the foundation is laid in our upbringing, what I would call nice conditioning. And sometimes it's heavy-handed and very much communicated. You know, you're going to do what I want. And if you offer any sort of counter idea or disobedience, it will be met with, you know, extreme force or, you know, abuse, alcoholic situation. This, this is extremely common. If someone has an alcoholic or other drug addicted parent, they become like, okay, I am responsible for their moods. And if I don't read it right, pain is coming, right? So you can have these extreme situations. And there's a lot of really subtle situations though, that aren't so extreme that Perhaps might be, I remember I was working with one client and, you know, loving family, religious household that wasn't, you know, intense sort of dogma of the religion, but she just many, many times referenced how much she could just never, I can't disappoint my dad. I could never disappoint my dad. And they never even rebelled. They never did any of that teen stuff. Why? Because you could never disappoint your dad. Now, the electric fence of I can't disappoint my dad was so intense that she never wanted to touch it. However, the dad communicated that, even if it was subtle, I mean, that's an extremely clear message to the kids. And so it doesn't have to be overt. It can be more subtle. It could be more looks and sighs and clicks of the tongue and emotional withdrawal and other things. And it doesn't take much, especially if the child is sensitive and emotionally aware to learn, okay, there's a right way to be, there's a wrong way to be. And then there's a really fascinating thing that, I didn't really get until I had my own kids that it seems like, and this is, I think, one of the big five personality traits too, though, so other people have seen this. There's a level of how much people want to follow the rules, conscientiousness, right? It's Some people really like that, and it feels really bad to not follow the rule, to break the rule. And then other people, it feels really bad to follow the rules. That's why it was one of your, your questions at the beginning in the lightning round, right? So my older son he wants to follow the rules. He wants other people to follow the rules. And my younger son, it's like, hey, here's the rules. He's like, I don't like any of that. No, no, I don't want to do it that way. And so if you, you get kind of a sensitive kid, emotionally, empathically connected and aware, wants to follow the rules, and it doesn't take much from a parent for them to learn, like, this is the right way to be. And that can get locked in because it locks into a survival strategy for connection. If I'm this way, I'll be loved. I'll get connection. And I call it a map of relationships. It's like a template in your mind. And yes, you can take that from age five to 15 to 25 to 35 to 55. And until there's that transition into a more self-sovereign adult, it will persist. 
no matter the age, no matter the chronological age. In your practice, have you, I don't know how much you've worked with first-generation immigrants or people particularly from Asian cultures, but do you have a sense that there's a big cultural difference between people coming from countries like India or China or Japan, where maybe the parenting style is really different and the, the social pressures to fit in are perhaps different versus uh, you know, more Western individualistic culture that we have here in the United States and big parts of Europe? Yeah, I mean, if you kind of look at the cultures as a whole, as a general broad strokes, you might say that, say, in my dad's from Pakistan and Indian origin, like that culture, the parents might have more clear ideas of like, this is what my child should do in their life. And it doesn't feel like, oh, that's oppressive and controlling. It's more like, no, that's what the parent's role is. They need to kind of map it out. And yet I found that, I mean, many, many people I work with are from Western country backgrounds and either their parents did have that clear, strict plan still, or they just absorbed it. So I wouldn't say I see it I, like, oh, wow, I have floods of people from you know the Eastern cultures. It's, but there is a particular flavor of needing to find their own way. And what I find is that it's more like breaking a cultural norm in those cultures. And and they sort of become like maybe the, oh, that's the one kid who went off and went squirrely. <laughs> but what I've found that's really amazing is that even though it's breaking the norm, there's so many clients where their parent is very resistant at first, but then as the other person steps more and more and owns that way of being, the parents like come around. It's like their bond of love and parent-child trumps the cultural field of what should be done when it's really tested is what I've seen. Yeah, it's an interesting example of your theme around niceness and kindness because I, you know, as a parent myself, you know, I think all of us as parents have expectations for our children and we do have a map of what we might want them to do or what we think they will be successful at based on our experiences or whatever. I mean, I, I don't know any parent that's completely a blank slate about what they hope for for their child. But it's interesting because when I think about my own parenting style and that that I've in the parenting style I see in a lot of my friends here in the US that templates never really shown to their kids it's sort of implied and the kid bumps into it a little bit when they try to do something that the parent doesn't quite say it, and it's sort of a parenting is niceness right like i have this thing but i'm not going to share it with you cuz i don't really want that conflict but every once in a while you're going to sense that you've run up against something i have a ton of colleagues from india you know, and and it's true. Their parents are much more explicit about this is what I think you should do. This is the map that I think you should follow. And, you know, all of them, if the kid gets to some point and they disagree with the map, they can have that conversation with their parent. You know, and obviously I don't want to generalize, but it feels like there's a huge parenting risk of being too nice of a parent. Yeah, I think there's a level of how narrow is that map, I think is an interesting question. And really it comes back to the, how much self-awareness and growth have the parents done because there's very common psychological patterns of you will carry on <laughs> all my failed dreams, right? That's kind of the, one of the pressures. So it's, you know, becoming more aware and hopefully having some curiosity about the tendencies and natural gifts of the child, really being curious about who they are and how they show up in the world. And so like, for example, with my children, some of my goals or what I would want for them is for them to learn some of the core capacities to fully express who they are in the world. 
if they want to do art or business or things that I think are going to make more or less money. Like I really don't, some parents might be like, you're not going to make anything with that. That's a stupid life direction. I don't have that. It's like, well, I might be explicit about fewer people make a lot of money doing that. So how much do you want to make money and how much do you want to do this thing? And how, here's the level to which I will support you. So I'll be clear about all that, but Hey, you want to be unsupported by me and bum around all throughout your twenties and Indonesia. Cool. Do it, whatever, you know, but at this age, they're seven to nine. Like I want to be helping build the capacity to do things like, can you persist into something that's uncomfortable even when you want to stop? Again, I'm not super hard about like, we're going to hold your hand to the fire. You know, you're going to finish that Taekwondo class or I will lay you out. But I look for little opportunities. Like we'll go for hikes, you know, on, on a weekend, maybe on a mountain or something like that. And sometimes I'll set the distance further than I know that they would want to go or it's a loop or something. So there's no way out. Right. And then sure enough, like three quarters of the way, it's like, this is terrible. And I'm like, yeah, that's right. You know, so little things like that or finding opportunities, because I think that's building a muscle of discomfort tolerance and that will allow them to whatever they want to pursue. So these are just different, like I'd say elements and then how they want to arrange those. I feel like I'm pretty, uh, open. Some people might take a level of responsibility of like, the success of my child as defined by my ideas of success reflects on me. And I don't feel that way. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsors. Meredith, I've recently become a really big fan of Athletic Greens and their product AG1. Have you tried it, Meredith? Yeah, I've tried it, and I have to say I look forward to taking it every day now. Yeah, for me, you know, the idea of having one super research drink that has everything I need, it's got all the vitamins and minerals that I need, prebiotics, probiotic, it's good for gut health, you're keeping your immune system tuned up, and just like feeling your best. The idea of that being in one single drink that I can take every day in the morning is very attractive. Yeah, and you know what else I really love is that AG1 is just one scoop that you put in eight ounces of water. It's not like you have to go out and buy a million different supplements and keep taking all of these pills. You've just got everything in one scoop. So it's so nice and convenient. And it's also so much more affordable. And it actually tastes good too. I mean, I enjoy drinking it every morning along with my coffee. And when I travel, you know, they give you these great travel packs so I can just slip it in my duffel bag when I'm visiting family, going on vacation. I've got it with me, so I'm always at my best. So if you're curious and want to check out Athletic Greens like Aaron and I and their AG1 formula, there's no better time to do it than now. You'll get a year's supply of vitamin D3 and K2 and five travel packs for free. So go to athleticgreens.com slash reconsidering and get your AG1 today. That's athleticgreens.com slash reconsidering. Now back to the show. I mean, this is like going into parenting and childhood more than talking about being nice and kind. But don't you find it interesting that we like continually kind of repeat ourselves? Like we never want to do what our parents, we're going to do the exact opposite of what our parents do, or we're going to do the exact what they do. But half the time we're doing it because we're like, I'm never going to be my parents. And then you turn into your parents. 
I mean, I'm not a parent, so like I don't like have this with you guys, but I just think of like, oh, I'd never do it that way, or I'd never do it that way. And I just think it's so interesting how you kind of get pulled back in because it's like what you know and what you're comfortable yeah. with and how you were raised, right? Well, it's really, I think that's a really interesting one. And parenting is so humbling. I've learned, and I'm still early in the game as my kids are not even teenagers yet, but I've already learned that when part of your parenting strategy is I'm not going to be like my dad, you're already setting yourself up for problems because that might not be your authentic self, right? That's not you authentically as a parent. That's you trying to probably deal with some leftover pain from the way that your parent was. But it also can really limit maybe the beneficial aspects of your parent being that way. My dad was too strict. I'm never going to be that way. Well, there might be a time to be strict sometimes. Like, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You don't want to, yeah. you know, you don't want a pendulum swing all the way to like, let's smoke pot together, 12-year-old <laughs> son, right? So I think a lot of people, both my wife and I started with like, I'm never gonna be like my mom in this way. I'm never gonna be like my dad in that way. And then there's some humbling things of like, oh, maybe a little bit of that would have been useful. Or, oh wow. I get why my dad did that now. It's not because he's a bad human. It's because he was stressed out like I was last night, right? And there's these moments of kind of humbling that I, I think are gifts. I also think parenting is like a bi-directional learning. It's a lot of, we think that I'm going to imprint upon you all the wisdoms that I've gained in my X years ahead of you on this planet. And yes, maybe there's that, but it's also like your child's going to teach you so much about yourself you know, my younger son is the one who doesn't like to follow any rules. I don't like to follow that many rules, but I want him to follow my rules. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. So when, you know, just this morning, just before this interview, we had some like sheet metal that's laid out on our driveway because I'm going to be building these raised garden beds and he gets his bike and he starts like riding it right near them. I'm like, hey, please don't ride over those. And he just like starts to ride right towards them. And I'm like, well, don't ride over those, you know? <laughs> and it's this like, ooh, I get to see what's needed here. And man, there's so much learning about me, about myself, about me and my dad, about how to be firm and loving. And, and a lot of those learnings might be uncomfortable too. So I think there's such a gift that we, and we learn from them too. Well, I think what's so relevant here is, you know, you, I can't remember the exact phrase you used, but I really liked it, which was something about like your childhood is the model or your map of relationships you know, like that kind of DNA imprint of how you think you're going to get and hold on to love, what human relationships mean. That's just, it's something you pick up at a very, very early age. And, you know, as you're talking about niceness versus kindness, I think there's a broken model there where you fall into this people pleasing because you just misinterpreted the experiment or something, you know, and you're kind of carrying that around. And, and when you start talking about niceness versus kindness, it feels like there's an intentionality that you can bring up in yourself when you get to a certain level of maturity. And you can say, no, no, I actually want to pivot over to this kindness thing and go into this more healthy space. I mean, what I love hearing you talk about your own parenting style is it's so intentional, you know. If you were in the house, you know, it might not always look that way, but uh, try. <laughs> well, but, I mean, I don't know that many parents that, and it depends on what age you are when you start parenting and how self-actualized you are and lots of other things. I mean, I just think a lot of folks, you know, a lot of people have kids before they're fully actualized themselves. It's, it's hard to parent with intentionality. Can we talk about boundaries? No. Next question. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're done. <laughs> this is something that I personally have struggled with personally in my career, everything. I'm definitely a people pleaser. I want to make everybody happy. I call it servant leadership when really I resent it, right? And so 
this is the whole reason why I got your book, to be honest, was I was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to learn how to say no. Can you tell us and our listeners some of the ways where you can start to explore what boundaries look like? Because it's an incredibly uncomfortable thing to do and you need to get into that comfort zone. So I'm just curious if you've got any like little lessons you can teach us. Sure. Yeah. Well, I think even just knowing that term and knowing that boundaries are a thing, I didn't know that at one point in my life. If someone said, what are your boundaries? I mean, like, I'm like, you mean around our house, our yard? I'm not joking. I literally did not know that that was a term. If you ask me as a teenager or something. So to know, oh, boundaries, as we're talking about your own preferences, essentially, of how do you want things to be? What do you want? What do you not want? How do you want things to go? And the key thing is that we all know we don't get everything we want in life and we don't control the universe and everyone doesn't do what we want, but that doesn't mean that you don't have a lot of preferences and that when we're nice, we're focused on pleasing others, attending to them, accommodating them, giving them what they want. And we're basically pretending to be a no needs kind of person. I don't have any needs. What do you need? Oh, you're having a hard day. Let me support you. And it's false. And you might not be aware of that. You might be thinking you're, you're just, that's how you feel. But you'll know it's false because there will start to be some tension inside. Maybe that comes up as resentment. Maybe that comes up as anxiety. Because if the resentment is too threatening, then we can kind of just shut the whole system down. You know, fatigue, anxiety, depressed. And what we want to start doing is actually listening for and honoring those inner this is what I want and this is what I don't want. And often they're very simple signals. Like, nah, doesn't sound good. Ooh, that sounds good. So one is knowing it's a thing and starting to listen for those preferences. And the other challenge though is that we might be listening with an agenda to make sure they're the right preferences. And I'd prefer not to see that stick relative this weekend. Oh, wow, oof, don't, that's terrible of you. Don't have that preference, right? So we immediately judge it. And then we're not really listening to ourselves. We have, we have an agenda. We, we should be the good person, the nice person. So the next step is to really, I'm not saying you have to act on every desire and say no to every little thing you don't want to do, but you got to at least be curious, like, what do I really feel here? And get comfortable with parts. Part of me wants to, and part of me doesn't want to, right? Because we're ambivalent creatures. So just giving a little bit of space. And this doesn't have to be an extremely long process, but just several minutes before you instantly say yes, you pause or you say, oh, let me get back to you on that. And you spend a few minutes and you're like, hmm, well, part of me thinks that feels like I'd be trapped there. But man, part of me feels like I really do care about this person and want to help them. Hmm. And then you are able to make a choice that is much more honoring of you. And then maybe a simple way to say all that is when I work with clients, often in the equation of their life decisions, they are a very small or non-existent variable in there. You want to become a significant variable in that equation. The whole world's not all about you, but you're in it. And look, you're a main character of your life. And the biggest obstacle to that, which is probably a whole other topic, is, well, to make your you a bigger variable, isn't that selfish? And I think that's the biggest stick that people hit themselves with that prevents all this. And that's why I have a chapter in Not Nice called Be More Selfish. It's just challenging that idea is actually you want to expand. If you get yourself to a decent size variable in that equation, it's actually a healthy level of self-interest. 
and you're able to sustain relationships, more authentic, more healthy, more truly loving relationships, perhaps indefinitely with certain friends or a partner for your whole life. Whereas if you're doing it the other way where, oh, I don't have any needs, you're not really going to sustain that. You're going to burn out. Yeah. It's like the metaphor of being on the plane, right? You need to put your oxygen mask on yourself before you can take care of anybody else. Because if you don't take care of yourself first, how are you going to be able to help anyone along the way? Yeah. And I think the challenge with that, and now it's a very common metaphor that we've all heard. I think a lot of nice people that I hear will be able to repeat. They've heard that before and they can say it, but then they're not doing it. And I think it's because in their mind, they're like, oh yeah, boundaries, totally. Take care of yourself, totally. When the plane is about to crash, that's when the air comes down. That's when I can do that. So they wait until the need is so great, right? Like they have the flu and they're on the toilet and then they're like, sorry, I can't come help you today. I am so sick. But let's say they're not so sick. Let's say they just think about doing the thing they said they were going to do on a Saturday morning and they just feel so heavy and so sad about their day. And they're like, ugh, hey, the plane's not crashing. Be a good person. You said you're going to be there. They're counting on you. Do the right thing. Go. And you're like, okay, all right, I will. And that's, I think, where the nice person will just do that again and again and again and again. And interestingly enough, they might get themselves to the place where they do have the sickness or the physical illness or whatever is happening that's strong enough that now I can set the boundary. You're describing something sort of like an exercise practice, right? Like a daily practice, a daily habit. Like I can not work out for a long time and then maybe I'll pick up running when I have a heart attack or I can manage this thing in, you know, I can manage this thing day in and day out and not let myself do ever it. Just wait, wait yeah. until you have a heart attack, then, yeah. then start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Aziz, I wonder if you could take that exact example of, you know, it's Saturday, you've got plans, somebody else wants you to come help them I don't know, load a truck so they can move to a new apartment. Tactically, for someone who struggles with boundaries and saying no, what do you say? How do you say it in a way that is clear and also feels okay? Yeah, great. So a baby step could be they you get the request and you say, wow, I'm not sure. Let me sit with that for a minute. Can I get back to you in five, 10 minutes? That's a, such a life-saving thing because in the moment, you might not be able to do it, right? It's like the pressure is too great. All the patterns are so strong. So initially, I'd say you can give yourself that little buffer. And then, or maybe immediately, if someone says, hey, can you help me? And say, oh, thanks for asking. Unfortunately, I'm not available today. And this is a key part because the biggest obstacle to saying no is not the words and knowing what to say. The biggest obstacle to saying no is that in your map of relationships, that template, you're not allowed to say no. That's a bad thing to do. You're a bad person. And that other person is not going to want to be your friend anymore. Or they're going to resent you and the relationship's going to suffer or they're never going to help you. And besides, you should be the kind of friend who helps each other and Oh my gosh, just it goes on and on, right? So the more you have permission to say no, and this is a key thing that I talk about in, in both books is about building up your own new set of rules, your own bill of rights, right? In my reality, I have a right to say no for any reason. I also have a right to say no without giving a reason. So the middle step I see with people is they'll say no, but they just put a lot of information in there. 
they have to like really justify. Oh man, I would totally want to. I really do want to spend all day loading that truck with you. It sounds great. But you know, the kids, it's a thing. And that's, 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 and, it's, and then it's about fear and anxiety and almost like a pleading quality. And you don't need to give a lot of reasons. Oh, like, oh. and you can do a warmth, right? Like, oh, thanks for asking. Or, oh, I hope the move goes well. Unfortunately, I'm not available today. And if you truly do want to contribute, but you just don't want to today, say, I'm not available today. But hey, next weekend, I have some time. And I know the move is just one day, but then there's all the unpacking of boxes. You want some help with that? I can come by. And here's another thing of your preference. I can come by for a couple hours or an hour on Thursday. And it's so, okay, it's yes with a very clear condition. And a key thing around that is like, well, how much, I don't know how much time I set it way lower, way lower, you know, and then you can always stay longer. I mean, it's like, great, you're staying, you're amazing, right? <laughs> Even though this might sound real mean or bad is what I found a couple key things to remember. One, that people are resourceful and you're not their lifeline for everything. And if you think you are, either you've really attracted someone who is you know, sinking in life and how many of those people are you going to keep afloat? Or there's a sense of it feels a little good. I'm special, right? If I don't do it, this person's going to die in a gutter. And it's like, wait a minute, you mean they could just call someone else? Well, I'm not special, right? So just letting, like, no, I'm not responsible for everyone. They're, they're a grown human. If I say no, they're going to pick up the phone and call someone else. And that's on them. And so knowing that is, I think, really relieves some of that pressure. And then also knowing that even this seems like mean or not generous or something, actually, when you're not 100% available for everything, rather than disliking you, people actually can be more respectful, more appreciative of time with you, and actually like you more. And this one is really, like the nice person brain doesn't grok it. And I didn't even, even after writing that book, Not Nice, I had two employees that I hired after that. And I was like, well, I'm going to be like the super great nice boss. I just gave a lot, right? Gave more time, more money, more this, more support. And instead of everyone being like regularly saying like, wow, you're the greatest boss ever, it became, well, that's my expectation of what I get. That's the new normal. And I'm like, wait a minute. No, no, that thing I did was really awesome. Yeah, that was awesome six months ago. Now, what do you got for me? And I was like, oh my gosh, right? I needed to be less generous, less available, less accommodating, and slowly have them work for it and then give a little bit. And it's very counterintuitive, but I think it's the same way in your social relationships. You can be less available. And this isn't some game where you have to pretend. It's just you're less available because you're really checking in with yourself and seeing what you actually want to do on that Saturday. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. It's, you know, in commerce, we talk about if you give something away for free, then people don't value it. You know, there's something about, no, I, I can't make it on Saturday because I value my own time. Yeah. And there are other things I need to do, but at some cost, I will come join you later. There's a, a really yeah. fascinating paradox in there that other people will respect you more and like you more if they know where you stand and you have your own self-respect to hold your own boundaries. Yeah. So in the book, you also talk about there's a way to use anger and put it to productive use. And I think all of us kind of feel anxiety with anger. We feel like we've lost control of ourselves. It doesn't feel like an emotion that we're in charge of. And so I'm curious if you could elaborate a little bit more about, I don't know, intentional use of anger, maybe is the way to put it. Yeah. 
Uh, man, anger. Anger is such a good one. There's so much learning with anger. I was like the most nice people, absolutely terrified of anger. Part of my nice conditioning was that my dad, how did my mom put it? It was, uh, I think it was something like your dad has a short fuse or your dad has a temper. It was kind of like, that's, you tell stories of before we were even born, he was that way. He's definitely, he's in his seventies now. He's definitely mellowed out quite a bit as people often do. But, and so, you know, he would get angry and I would be very scared as a little kid. And so I learned that's a terrible way to be. And like we were talking about earlier, I'm never going to be that way. And so I literally did not express anger or even really let myself feel it for, man, maybe two decades. And much of that time also had chronic pain. So, hmm. But uh, <laughs> in, in any case, so sometimes people are like, okay, anger is bad. And then they start to see, oh, maybe it's healthy. Maybe I, maybe I do feel it even if I'm pushing it down. Maybe it's an inevitable part of life. And then the next step is like, okay, but I'm going to like tame that beast. I'm going to keep the anger. It's a tiger. I'm going to keep it in a cage and I'll get the benefits out of it. But we'll all look at the tiger and appreciate, but no one's gonna let that thing out. Right. And I think there's something about life, which is, but not all emotions are meant to be controlled. And with anger, it's kind of like, can you ride the beast well enough? <laughs> can you try to steer it as you're galloping along? And there's definitely ways to do that. But I think one thing to start with for people is to really give permission while alone to really fully let yourself feel anger and even start to seek it out. What might be bothering, especially if you're really anxious. Okay, yeah, I'm so stressed. About, okay, maybe, maybe, sure, totally, you are. But if you were uh, upset with somebody or about something in your life, maybe irrationally, maybe you signed up for it, but another part of you, remember parts, another part is like, I don't want to do all this. Or you're doing the loving thing, you know, an example maybe where you do want to kind of choose to be kind and you're taking care of a sick relative or something. Doesn't mean there's not a part of you that's also angry. You don't have to go tell them that, but you in the privacy of your own room, your own house to be able to feel that part because otherwise it just starts to simmer and build, right? So permission to be angry and that people can do that in a journal and typing is great because you can just literally erase what you typed but you just type for five minutes, let like the most immature, blamey, angry, cursy thing you want to write. Even if you're not sure, am I really angry about that? I don't know. Let it out. Right. Or I call it a rage walk in, in the book, right? It's like go for a 10, 15 minute walk or whatever. And I'd be doing this around the streets back when I lived in the city of Portland, just kind of muttering to myself, you know, shaking my head and muttering. And it's powerful to really let yourself feel it. And then there's an ability to start to see, okay, anger is a message. Anger can be telling you, one of the key messages of anger is I'm saying no to something in my life. You want to get that message because if you, if you suppress it, something is perhaps going to go askew in your life. So I'm saying no to something. It could also be that I have an expectation of how someone or something is supposed to be. And that's one of the messages I give. Does that mean I need to you know, go ask or have a difficult conversation? Or is that an expectation to let go of, right? But there's a lot of richness in that. But we don't get all that. I've tried this for years, trust me. We don't get all that but being like, I'm going to calmly, peacefully meditate anger, get all the gems, and feel nothing. You know, And it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't work. And so sometimes it comes out hot. Sometimes it's not just alone. I think there's a humbling quality to that. And there's something so beautiful 
about these two words, which is I'm sorry. So if you, you it does come out hot, you're messy, you say something that's a little blamey or not what you wanted, you cool down, you come back and you're like, hey, I mean, I, I do want to have the conversation we're having. I'm sorry that came out blaming, right? And that might sound like, oh, uh, people think like I'm, I've done wrong. Actually, that got the whole ball rolling. This metaphor I like to use, which is if you think about a pipe that water hasn't flown for a while, maybe it's got a blockage. When water starts to flow, like you see this in relationships. There's a lot of nice resentment people haven't talked about. They have, they've been not having the conversations they need to have. And when they first start having those conversations, what first comes out is the, the, the brackish sludge that's been holding up the pipe, right? And, <laughs> and so it's okay. Maybe that first five minutes or even a whole first conversation is just a lot of, well, yeah, 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 yeah. And then you come back the next day, an hour later, and it starts to be a little more useful, clean water flowing and was absolutely essential. So we don't want to be terrified of those first five minutes, the first conversation that is a little messy. And just to know that relationships are messy and anger is messy, but it's an unavoidable part of actually healthy relating. Yeah, I love this part. You've, you've mentioned it a couple of times during our conversation that there's more than one part of me. There's multiple voices inside of me. You know, I have to check in with this piece and check in with that piece. And I think too often we want to believe that we're this singular being talking with a single mind. But in fact, we're sort of this modular mind. And it's a bit of a committee in there more than it's a dictator, right? And so yeah. I think some piece of you has to, you know, call on each person on the committee and give them their due. Oh, yeah. We got some screwballs in there, too. Just yeah. ones just saying random things. I, I got one I call Chicken Little in there. And his prediction is always death and ruin. You know, it's like, how do you think this marketing campaign is going to go? Terrible. Okay, great, <laughs> great input for Chicken Little. Who else, you know? And but he's there and and he does, you know, every part does serve a purpose. There's a time to, you know, be cautionary and but uh he's just got a bit of a hair trigger. Yeah, that's funny. I have a handful of voices that I have names for as well. There's Julie and Steve and Dave and Carl and stuff. And it is interesting when you can call on them by name, whatever yeah. that might be. It's it's yeah. a it's a really interesting inner voice technique. Yeah. So Aziz, we like to finish every show with an interesting kind of reverse mentoring question. So what I'm hoping you can do for me is maybe close your eyes and sort of imagine yourself as a 25-year-old. Like try to really bring forth again Aziz as a 25-year-old. And then I want you to imagine Aziz today hanging out with that person. And I'm wondering what kind of advice that 25-year-old Aziz would have for Aziz today. Like what was it you knew in your youth that perhaps you've lost touch with at your current age? Are you saying I'm no longer young, Bob? <laughs> <laughs> I'll let How you take that you? however, however you How want. Dare you, sir. <laughs> the younger Younger's version of yourself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's, what did your 25-year-old self say that your 26-year-old self has forgotten? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it feels a little cliche, but that's what's there is to – it's like about levity. That guy had a lot less responsibilities I'm doing responsible things and playing roles, but not 100% of the time, right? So in between, when you're doing the thing, in between, put it down and just have a lot more levity and freedom. And that 25-year-old was not so, he didn't always need to be improving and stuff. That's not necessarily the purpose of things is to get better at them and to master them and to do, it's just, maybe it's something else. Maybe it's just to have fun or to connect and that sort of thing. So I think there's some good wisdom from that guy. So 
you're coming out with a new book. It's called Less Nice, More You. Where can people find it? And when is it coming out? Yeah. So Less Nice, More You is the follow-up to Not Nice. It's a shorter, tighter, punchier, new way of not just teaching about these things, but I call it the lightning bolt. Hopefully it jolts you and starts a fire that burns away all the stuff that's not you. So you can just get out there and really start to actually live this as opposed to learning about it. And it comes out in Kindle and paperback on October 11th in 2023. And then the Audible will be following that very shortly within probably a week or two of the Kindle and paperback release. And we're going to be doing a a special during the release day and maybe the day after, October 11th or 12th, where people can get it for a smoking deal, something like we're looking at maybe $199 on the Kindle, something like that. So that might be the great time to pick that up. And then if you want to get the audio or something later, you could. Fantastic. Aziz, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Yeah, that was really fun. I loved the questions. Thank you. I think a lot of people, I suspect, can relate to his narrative in his first book of really trying hard to be everything to everybody, to like get people to like you, try to get someone to love you. And he touched on this in the conversation, but like there's a paradox there of the more you try to get others to like you, the more you try to get people to love you, the less likable and lovable you are. I think we all figure that out when we're dating, you know, because if you've ever been in a relationship with somebody who was constantly contorting themselves to fit in with your demands, most of us find that incredibly frustrating. But yet we're still doing that back in relation to our parents or our friends or our coworkers or whatever. It's a really common behavior. We had that whole thing we were talking about childhood, and it was a lot of this niceness versus kindness seems to be rooted in, I hate to call it childhood trauma, but there is a, you know, patterns that get established by how you're, as a young child, how you're trying to solicit parental love. And as he was talking, I was just struck by the whole thing around Santa Claus and like, you know, Santa Claus knows if you've been naughty or nice. And like, those are the only two options. Like you've either been naughty or nice. There is no in between. There are no other options. And I never just never thought about how, well, one, how profoundly dysfunctional that binary choice is. And then also it says you've been naughty or nice, not that you've been naughty or kind or something like that. It's just that that word and that concept of nice comes through in like every kid in America. And I think probably all obeyed or disobeyed. Yeah. It's just so like, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of, I've always thought about being you know, as a kid, how how frightening elements of Halloween must be. But now I'm sort of realizing like, no, man, the real terror of childhood is freaking Santa Claus. Because this guy is like the ultimate judge. And you are on one side or the other. You are naughty or nice. And that's all there is to it. You know, you're on the list. You are on the list, man. But no wonder (laughs) as we grow up, we start to have all of these issues with boundaries and like what we feel like we can do and what we feel like we can't do. Because like none of us have ever really been taught it. It's like kind of like self-taught and through trial and error versus being raised that way. I don't know, Aaron, I'm curious now that you've got two young kids, 
after having this conversation, are you, or and reading his books, like, are you reframing the way you think about things with the boys? Or are you like, nope, we'll talk about this once we get through their childhood? I don't think I'm taking a different approach. I've been thinking about what were my shortcomings growing up. And my parents were fantastic parents. They were wonderful people. They were tremendously supportive. I wouldn't be who I am without their investment in me. And yet, even when you are a wonderful parent, there are things like, you know, if you could go back, you would maybe play it differently. Lessons to be learned. And I'm 100% certain there's a fair bit of that playing out in my own parental narrative at the moment. But I have one son who is kind of prone to negative self-talk and he's super empathetic, exactly like Aziz just described, like that kid who's like hyper-tuned in emotionally and so forth. And he's very bright. He does not like to follow rules, though. He hates the rules. And, you know, for him, I have to parent differently than my other son who, you know, is just a very different human being. Just thinks about the world differently, thinks about his place in the world very differently. And so for my one son who's very emotionally attuned, I have to just constantly say, like, you're enough. You're awesome. There's not a damn thing wrong with you. And sometimes I will even say that phrase, there's not a damn thing wrong with you. Because if a parent uses a curse word with a kid, it's like, whoa, holy cow, this must be a really important message. So I think that's really important because I just think there's a lot of programming in the world. You know, one message I took on as a kid is, you know, I took on a lot of guilt of if I wasn't conforming just the right way, exactly as Aziz has outlined in his book and outlined in the conversation. And that stuff you just carry, I carried it for far too long, like a ridiculously long ways. And then once I let go of it, I was just like, well, that's a whole lot better. That's a lot nicer. And to go back to that paradox, the more you try to be lovable, the less lovable you are. When I stopped trying to perform for a particular result, it's easier for me. I think I'm a better friend, a better partner to my wife, a better parent. Like, it's just... Things are so much easier. It's funny. I look back and you know, hearing all of us talk about it, my own experiences. It it feels like there's this point in your life which is probably, you know, I don't know, between like 14 months and 36 months or something, like super early on, where you are running experiments against the world and you reach some conclusion about, oh, this is the way I need to be to secure parental love, which deep in my rom code, I know I need to survive. And basically, we'll just call it 24 months, basically as a two-year-old, you end up making a commitment that you're still living with in your 30s and 40s, 50s and beyond. As you get older, it's like, how can I go back and renegotiate that? Or you know, can I go look at that experiment again and realize that I might have made the wrong conclusion and maybe there's a different way to interpret that? And now with my new data and my new interpretation, I can have a new theory of the world and how I want to be in it. Meredith, what did you take away from Aziz? in the books. Honestly, I don't know why this was like such a big deal to me, but like I never differentiated niceness from kindness. And now that I have those two definitions, like I personally want to lean more towards kind than nice. And I think as somebody who runs a design community and runs it for free or most of it for free, I've started having these conversations with myself of Am I doing this to be nice or am I doing this for something 
better that I can also get out of this. And I'm starting to realize like just in work relationships and, and just what I'm doing and how I'm giving my energy out is it's just allowing me to reevaluate things a little bit more. And I think I just needed to hear it from somebody else and to read both of his books to kind of like let it soak in a little bit and give it permission to be okay to say no to things and okay to say no to things without having to have an excuse either. And I think he talked totally. about that. And I think when he was like, oh yeah, you could go into this, you know, five minute explanation about why you can't do something. It's really just okay to be like, no, I'm sorry. I'm committed to something else. Or I'm sorry, I just can't do it. And I think we think people expect another explanation, but in reality, I don't ever ask for another explanation when somebody's like, oh, you're busy. Okay, I got it. It doesn't make me respect them any less. It doesn't make me think about them any less. It doesn't make me want to ask them for help any less. It just means that they're busy. So I just realized I put way too much pressure on myself to make other people feel good and feel happy. And it's coming as a sacrifice to me instead of something that I want to feel good about. And so now that I have these tools and you know, now that we've talked to them, I just feel like I can move through the world a little bit easier and just get, glide a little bit further than just feeling like I'm always stuck, if that makes sense. You know, we didn't get into this when we were talking with Aziz, but I am sort of, I was a little surprised you didn't bring it up, but I'm going to ask you about it now. Like, okay. how do you think about this issue as a woman and how there's different social pressures operating on women in this regard versus what you probably think of as the social pressures on men? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, you see it in the workforce all the time. And I think that's what I'm going to is like, I think, you know, like you're a woman and you're a meeting, you're kind of like, oh, can you take notes? Oh, can you go get that person from the front door? Oh, can you go grab the drinks? Like, oh, can you make the lunch order? Like, oh, you know, all of this stuff. And I think the last few years, it's gotten a little bit better just because people have worked from home and women especially don't have to do all of that stuff as much. What worries me is like, if it's going to come back and be as strong or as recognized as it was before. And, and the reason why I say that is now we have this return to work kind of mandates happening all over the place in a lot of these companies. And it's like the first time that women have actually increased their salaries and have actually, there are more women in the workforce than ever before as of like this week, right? And this request to go back in and do all of this stuff as a parent and as a mother and as a spouse and go back into work. Like, I wonder if that's going to change. And I wonder if these expectations of taking the notes and going to grab the lunch and doing all of this stuff is going to pick back up or if people are thinking about things differently. So it'll be interesting to see. Yeah. I mean, I think there's always that inherent guilt that I've had, right? And I think over the years, I've become better at saying no to that stuff. And also, hiring people on my teams that aren't just female, but males that could do that too, right? And so I don't know if it'll ever go away, but I hope that people are more cognizant of it. And I hope that women and underrepresented minorities can start to feel like it's okay to push back and say no, because things are a little bit different now. One of the things I want to press on a little bit is this, all the examples you used, getting coffee, taking notes, et cetera, they seem to all be extensions of the concept of women as caregivers. I just wonder now how much of the pressure to be nice, which is one of self-sacrifice, comes from this pressure and maybe, in, I don't know, maybe instinctual drive to be a caregiver and sort of sacrifice your own needs in order to put 
the needs of the family or the situation or whatever ahead of yours? Yeah, it's really complicated and complex, right? <laughs> I mean, Bob, you and I were talking before the show about like how like I'm a hugger, right? I am just like naturally like a caring person. And just because I don't have kids doesn't mean that I don't have this innate ability to want to take care of other people. And that's part of my personality. However, I think also being female is there's always kind of this expectation that if you don't say things a certain way or you don't respond a certain way, then pardon my language, but like people are like, oh, she's a bitch or, oh, she's too aggressive or, oh, she won't play nice or like she's not a team player. And so I've never experienced that blatantly, but that's not to say I haven't experienced it and just on like undertones. And so maybe I've been incredibly fortunate about that. I think this for me empowers me to be like, okay, there's a way to say things that are still kind and Words are used a certain way that maybe get the point across a little bit better than just saying no, but I still feel like I still have to say things a different way than a man probably would. And that just sucks. Yeah. When our daughter was a teenager, I used to kind of joke that, you know, every parent dreams of raising an independent woman until they start talking back, you know, <laughs> and then you're sort of like, like, wait, I want you to be independent in the world, but at home, I want you to do everything I tell you to do. I'm sure our daughter, if she was here, would say it's a very complicated, mixed message that I suspect most women deal with, you know, because I, at least in for the last X number of years, you know, I think probably most parents do want their daughters to be independent, strong women in the external world. But when they're at home, they want them to play the more traditional subservient woman or girl in the house. One thing that Aziz talks about in the Not Nice book is a process of recognizing the rules that are built into you. They're built into society. It's like, these are the rules of the game that you're operating by and you don't even recognize it. So these gender archetypes and gender traits that are, they're very generalized and they come from history and archetypes tend to have some truth in it, but they're not true. They're not true in all situations for all people. They change, right? And then he talks about making your own rules once you've recognized that these are the rules that are out there, then saying like, actually for me, this is not a thing that I'm willing to do. I think that's a really healthy process to kind of build your own rules of how you're going to engage with people, what you're willing to give, you know, like Meredith, it's awesome to be a caregiver. And it's like an incredible superpower that you have of basically like you're a social savant. You can kind of see situations and anticipate challenges and solve them better than most human beings that I know. That's a superpower. But like most superpowers, they can flip back on us. Like if they get overused, they can tear us apart. So it kind of goes back to boundary thing, but more broadly, just the rules that you choose to guide your life. Well, and that's like, this is something I've been thinking a lot about lately is just because you're good at something doesn't mean you have to do it. Just because you're good at something doesn't, and just because other people expect you to do it doesn't mean that you have to do that. And I think that's also like plays into this whole being nice, being kind thing is it's okay to say no to something because you don't want to do it. And just to quote Aziz, he said, people are resourceful and you're not their lifeline for everything. Mm-hmm. I want to drive home that last statement you made, Meredith, because earlier in, in our conversation here, you were talking about when you were saying no to something, well, I'm busy, you know, or I can't make that. Like you were providing that kind of an excuse. And it was just in your last comment when you said, 
no, I'm not going to do it because I don't want to. Mm-hmm. That seems frankly, much healthier. Because in the in the initial models, like, well, I'm looking at my calendar and I'm logically analyzing it and there's just not an open space in my calendar. Sorry, I can't make it. And your statement a second ago was more like, no, I actually don't want to do it, so I'm not going to come do it. And that's all there is to it. But I can say that to myself, but I don't feel like I could say that to anybody else. Like, I don't feel like I could say that ex- externally. I feel like internally that validates me, but I still feel like I would need some sort of filter to get that out in a way that isn't going to be offensive or unkind or rude. I think there are ways to say it. I mean, it can be healthy to just be rude in that situation to protect yourself, but it can be about your commitments. What are you committed to? What are your values? What's most important to you? Part of what you're committed to is yourself and your well-being. And to say, like, I'm not able to do that because I have other commitments is true. And it's not that, you know, this thing isn't a worthy cause, but you're committed to other things. You have agreements that you want to honor. And honoring those agreements is really important to you. And their desires shouldn't come in front of those commitments that you've made to yourself. That is true. Also, this is why I don't own a pickup truck. Like plain and simple. (laughs) (laughs) Like just just if you never want to help anyone move, don't own a pickup truck. You will be just fine. <laughs> Haven't you seen those bumper stickers that are like, no, I won't help you move, and they're on pickup trucks? It's amazing. Awesome. Well, I enjoyed the book, and the new book is coming in October. Definitely some practical guidance in there for everybody. Reconsidering is created by Aaron Walter, Bob Baxley, and me, Meredith Black, with editing help from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. Original music for the show was written and performed by Kimo Maraki. You'll find a full transcript of this episode and all the links mentioned at reconsidering.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player to catch future episodes and discover the treasures of the Reconsidering Library. To support the show, we'd be ever so grateful if you'd leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Your review will help others discover the show. And life, like the seasons, is ever-changing, but satisfaction can be found every day when we tune in. Until next time.